0: Straits brings legal and business insights at the intersection of the shipping and energy sectors. This podcast series offers trends, developments, challenges and topics of interest from Reed Smith litigation, regulatory and finance lawyers across our network of global offices. If you have any questions about the topics discussed on this podcast, please do contact our speakers. Hello and welcome to this latest edition of Trading Straits. My name is Nick Austin. I'm a partner in the transportation team in the London office of Reed Smith. I focus on resolving disputes in the shipping and commodity sectors for a range of global clients in mediation and in arbitration and court proceedings. I'm delighted today to be joined by two of my Reed Smith partners, Jennifer Smokelin and James Wilm. Jen is a partner in Reed Smith's global energy and natural resources practice. Based in the US, she's a bright, energetic thought leader on environmental and emerging energy issues, greenhouse gas legislation, and related environmental issues, with particular experience in the mid-Atlantic states of Texas and in California too. James is a partner in Reed Smith's global energy and natural resources practice as well, and based in Dubai, where in terms of the maritime sector, his clients predominantly act within offshore support services To the oil and gas industry, and also include vessel owners, offshore contractors, and shipyards. With those introductions out of the way, Jen, perhaps you can kick us off.
1: Thanks, Nick. Today's podcast is all about the transition to net zero in international trade and the shipping activity that makes that happen. Following COP26 in Glasgow last year, the world is once again focused on climate change and the reduction of carbon emissions in a broad range of industries, including the extractive and transportation sectors. Recent IPCC reports and the developments at the COP26 climate summit in Glasgow have been called a, quote, wake-up call that the shipping industry, quote, cannot ignore. This is in part because in the aftermath of COP26, countries must now build on their commitments to save the Paris agreements, quote, holding the world to a 1.5 degree centigrade temperature increase ambition with concrete steps. In fact, certain actions were taken at the COP26 summit itself that were said to lay an important foundation for these concrete steps for the shipping industry. The steps are seen as follows. First, 54 climate-vulnerable countries signed an agreement known as the DACA-Glasgow Declaration, demanding a carbon levy on ship fuel. 22 countries at the COP agreed to set up decarbonized shipping corridors through a declaration called the Clydebank Declaration. And finally, 14 countries endorsed something called the Declaration on Zero-Emission Shipping by 2050. To the extent these are seen as concrete steps, let's unpack what these steps really mean. Of these three steps, the most important, or the one that shows the most support, to the extent that support can be validated based on the number of signatories, is from 54 parties at the COP. And while that may seem like a lot of member countries to sign a document, consider that currently, There are 197 parties, that's 196 member states and one regional economic integration organization, the Vatican, that are signatories to the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. So doing the math, less than one third of the COP parties signed the DACA Glasgow Declaration and less support down to less than 10% for the declaration on zero emission shipping by 2050 is garnered by the other agreements signed at the COP. Also, it's important to take a look at who signed the agreement. Of the 54 signatories to the Dakar-Glasgow declaration, not one is first world. And even major third world players like China and India are notably absent. In contrast to the DACA Glasgow Declaration, the Clydebank Declaration and the Declaration on Zero Emission Shipping do have first world support, notably the United States and the United Kingdom. But the language in these documents is particularly weak from an enforceable commitment standpoint. For example, in the Clydebank Declaration, the signatories agree to a mere pledge to, quote, facilitate the establishment of willing partnerships with participation from willing ports to accelerate the establishment of green shipping corridor projects. The key here is the pledge is limited to willing participants. That is, there is no commitment from the signatory nations to force any port or operator that doesn't volunteer. In the Declaration on Zero Emissions, the pledge is to, quote, work at IMO to adopt goals for 2030 and 2040 that place the shipping sector on a pathway to full decarbonization by 2050. It's notable to acknowledge that the pledge here is merely to place the shipping sector, quote, on a pathway, close quote, to decarbonization, as opposed to a flat out commitment that these signatories shall place the sector in full decarbonization by 2050. In sum, the pledges coming out of the COP were weak in terms of binding commitments by signatory nations for concrete actions. Nonetheless, we expect to see a renewed push in 2022, on a range of initiatives aimed at reducing carbon emissions as quickly and effectively as possible. And fresh measures, rules, and regulations will start to come thick and fast. Shipping presents a major challenge, as historically, its byproducts, mainly through the use of heavy, unclean fuels, account for about 3% of the world's CO2 emissions, the equivalent to Germany but the IMO has been increasingly active in recent years in tackling the problem at a global level. Nick, perhaps you can elaborate. Are there any new initiatives and regulations in the pipeline for the shipping industry, which will help meet the industry's carbon reduction targets?
0: I mean, yes, the answer to that is that there are quite a few uh, in the pipeline. And I was interested to hear that overview from you on the uh, outcome of the Glasgow COP conference uh, this year because it has a I think a direct impact on what the IMO is trying to trying to do uh, there can't be many people left in the shipping sector unaware that the IMO has, has set a target of reducing uh, annual greenhouse gas emissions uh, now as you say referred to as a pathway by about 40% by 2030 and to pursue a, a 70% reduction by 2050 And as a a way of achieving that, what the IMO has done through the uh, Marine Environment Protection Committee, the MEPC, has uh, made amendments to the um, MARPOL Convention, the International Convention for the Prevention of Pollution from Ships, which is known really by uh, everyone as MARPOL. And what those changes are going to do is implement uh, new technical rules, two in particular, one called the Energy Efficiency Existing Ship Index, which is a a bit of a mouthful, but uh, EEXI for short, and the Carbon Intensity Indicator, the CII. And both of those regulations are due to come into force on the 1st of January, 2023, which may sound a a long time away, but is of course less than a year from now. Very simply, EEXI is a framework for determining the efficiency of the design of in-service vessels over 400 tonnes, which will be the vast majority of uh, merchant ships, falling under Marpol Annex 6, which, again, uh, most ships will. The CII is a bit different. It's an operational measure, so not related to the design, but an operational measure of how efficiently a ship transports goods or passengers, measured in terms of the CO2 that's emitted by uh, distance travelled and the cargo that's being carried. As many will know, the regulations are complex, they're evolving, and a lot of the detail is still to be made clear. But what's becoming very plain is that parties in the industry need to start work now on planning for when they come in in January next year. What issues are they going to throw up? Well, look, there's going to be a range of commercial and legal issues in the run-up to January 2023. The key one, perhaps above all, is going to be uh, who is going to pay for compliance with uh, EEXI and CII as between owners and charterers of vessels under long-term time charters after the 1st of January next year, both those that are on foot at the moment uh, and where you have new charters agreed after that date. And to address that, what we are starting to see quite rapidly is the emergence of industry clauses for use in time charter parties. BIMCO have, in the last month or so, already released their own transition clause for time charters, which deals with issues arising from EEXI in the run-up to next January. And clauses like that, and there will be uh, perhaps others that come along in the weeks and months to follow, but they should cover the key points uh, and deal with the allocation of risk and cost between the owners and charterers, But what I'm starting to see and what we're seeing here at Reed Smith are clauses being tailored specifically to a particular client's needs. And they may differ pre and post implementation. They may be more owner friendly. They may be more charter friendly. But we're actively advising a number of clients on those issues already. On the, on the sort of purely legal side, I think I'll make three quick points about the rules now. Uh, For EEXI, uh, the design uh, parameter regulation, it almost goes without saying that it's the ship owners, of course, who are primarily responsible for ensuring that the vessel complies with applicable regulations, including uh, a marpole. And most charter parties will say uh, in terms, in black and white, or they'll imply it if they don't say it in black and white, that modifications that are required to comply with uh, the new rules will lie with the owners as part and parcel of their obligations to provide a seaworthy ship. For CII, uh, owners of uh, time-chartered vessels, of course, have to comply with whatever the charterers are ordering them to do, what they load, uh, where they go. Uh, But that in itself could affect the vessel's CII rating. And under CII, a ship owner, a vessel, will have to maintain a certain level of CII rating. If it doesn't, it has to take steps to improve it. So the owners have to comply with CII and yet the charter is under a time charter uh, can give uh, lawful employment orders. And there's a tension there between those two things because uh, decisions taken by owners to comply with CII or improve their rating, so for example to slow steam, to go more slowly, to reduce cargo carrying capacity they may all be at odds with what the charters want the ship to do and what they are paying for it to do. Uh, and there may indeed be a breach of the charter party uh, in, in principle by the owners if they are not able to comply with the charterers' orders. So clauses, BIMCO or, or uh, tailor-made ones for clients need to be thinking about all of those issues. That's a brief run through what I think will be the uh, central initiative around uh, emissions in the coming year in shipping. There are other issues in the pipeline, and I think regulations will, as you say, Jen, start to come sort of thick and fast in the next one, two, three years and beyond. But certainly this is one of the main focuses for us at the moment.
1: That insight is really helpful, and I think it's important to understand how the regulations are moving forward on top of changes that happened at the COP. James, can you tell us a bit about recent developments concerning zero emission vessels and green corridors?
2: Yes. Thanks, Jennifer. Yeah, no problem at all, and happy to speak about it. So, yeah, we've 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 seen a real push in the last few years in the development of new technology surrounding zero emission vessels. The future wide scale rollout of zero emission vessels is seen as one of the key requirements if the shipping industry is to meet those very ambitious IMO targets uh, on the reduction of emissions that you've both discussed. The technology surrounding zero emission vessels is largely still in the development phase, and we're currently seeing pilots or or demonstrations of of new zero emission vessels. However, the the general feeling and, and general expectation is that by 2024, so really not that long long away, the technology will exist to make even the largest vessels zero emission. And there's been some really exciting and recent developments in this field, and I'm just going to discuss a, a couple of examples here. So, as recently as December 2021, the Japanese shipping company Asahi Tanker they launched the world's first all-electric tanker. The tanker is powered by a, a large capacity lithium iron battery and is due to enter service in Tokyo Bay as a bunker vessel around march twenty twenty two in addition to those those very obvious environmental benefits from an emissions perspective the the electric tanker is actually expected to improve the the general working environment on the ship by eliminating vibration and, and noise as well as reducing the ship's maintenance requirements. So so a good win all round. The company itself are actually expected to take delivery of a second electric tanker vessel next year in March. And just one further example, so the Norwegian fertiliser company Yara has recently taken delivery of the world's first zero emission container ship. It's actually hoped that this particular vessel could set the standard for future short-sea shipping particularly in Europe, where approximately 60% of international shipping is along short routes. And actually, what's really interesting about this particular ship is it's actually been purpose-built to be completely autonomous at some point, so the expectation is that it'll be launched with a with a fully onboard crew initially before actually moving to what will be fully remote and finally to full autonomy after only a few years of operation at sea. And alongside the development of zero emission vessels, and, and Jennifer you touched upon it at, at the start, there's been a real sustained effort within the shipping industry to consider the implementation of what's known as green shipping corridors. Now green corridors are very specific trade routes between major port hubs where zero emission solutions are both supported and actively demonstrated and the hope and uh, and expectation from these particular projects is that the implementation of green corridors will lead to wider scale adoption of Zero emission solutions across global trade routes. If these work from the start, then they will be rolled out more expansively. And there's been two quite significant uh, pre-feasibility studies on two potential green corridor routes that are actively taking place. One is known as the Australia Japan Iron Ore Corridor, and the other is the Asia Europe Container Corridor. And these two corridors have been selected based on their very specific characteristics that are favorable to conversion to green corridors so the Australia Japanese iron ore corridor was selected due to Australia's proposed large scale development of green hydrogen the physical availability of bunkering in in northwest australia for the vessels themselves and just generally good political relationships between australia and japan as to the asia europe container corridor well this was selected due to the the pipeline of announced green hydrogen general growing demands for decarbonization throughout the whole value chain and the the particular freight characteristics on this route permit the participants to share costs with their end users without a real significant increase in the retail prices themselves and as you both discussed The report actually suggests that the green corridor policies will be looking to be implemented around 2030 in order to meet that overall shipping and industry expectation of full decarbonisation by 2050. Both of those look very exciting and very interesting and hopefully will be implemented in the future.
0: It's going to be really interesting having heard from both uh, you and Jen today to see how these issues uh, develop this year. It is clearly a central focus of governments around the world, uh, despite perhaps the weakness of some of the commitments coming out of COP26 last year, but also of the maritime industry. And as we know, and as I said earlier, this is something that's coming across our desks uh, really on a daily basis at the moment here at Reed Smith. That brings us to to the end of this episode of Trading Straits. We hope you uh, have enjoyed it and found uh, the discussion we've had interesting and informative. My thanks to Jen and James for their excellent insights. And we hope you will join the next episode of Trading Straits at a later date. In the meantime, please don't hesitate to get in touch with any of us or your usual contact at Readsmith. Thank you and goodbye. Trading Straits is a Reed Smith production. Our producer is Ali McArdle. For more information about Reed Smith's energy and natural resources or transportation practices, please email tradingstraits at reedsmith.com. You can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple, Google, Stitcher and reedsmith.com and our social media accounts at Reed Smith LLP on LinkedIn, Facebook and Twitter.